You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. I'm David Payne, the BMJ's web editor. And in this edition, we'll be looking at the ins and outs of prostate cancer screening and hypertension therapeutics. Whether or not to screen for prostate cancer is an ongoing debate, with the intuitive notion that being tested improves outcomes. A trial published last week in the BMJ has found that it doesn't, and that prostate cancer deaths don't significantly differ between men who are and aren't screened. It's, of course, uh, it's a problem with screening that you have a tendency of, of detecting the more benign tumours. Also, our associate editor, Mabel Chu, recounts the ABCD of hypertension treatment. That is, ACE inhibitors and ARBs, beta blockers, calcium antagonists and diuretics. James Ritter, Professor of Clinical Pharmacology at King's College London, talks her through the advantages and disadvantages of each. One uncommon but severe adverse effect is angioedema. First, though, what's happened in the last week on BMJ.com? I have our multimedia intern, Harriet Vickers. Hello, Harriet. Hi, David. What have you got for us today, Harriet? Well, the first one that caught my eye was a methadone trial in Afghanistan. Right. Um, which is, is a news report by Peter Mazinski, and it's reported very positive outcomes of this. They reported increased general and mental health of patients, reduced criminal activity, and also greatly improved social integration. Um, it's particularly pertinent in Afghanistan because they've had a, a huge rise in heroin use over the last four years. Um, there are one million people in the country who use the drug, so it seems to, to be very needed. But alongside this, he, he reports that there are actually still quite a lot of barriers. The government lacks awareness and there's a lot of poor coordination going on there. That's very interesting. Don't forget you can see that on bmj.com. What else have you got for us? Anything closer to home? Yes, there was actually. There was something by Des Spence, who's a general practitioner in Glasgow. Yes, our regular columnist. Yes, and he, he's written about the health dangers of being a doctor's child. Um, and specifically, he's got this idea that doctor parents can go to either end of the, the kind of neuroses spectrum yes. and, and either they hate taking their children to the doctor and, and they put off seeking medical advice but then there are some who thinks they're entitled to be neurotic because possibly they know too much about the dangers right so yeah quite quite a controversial stance that he takes there yes well he's no stranger to controversy last week's column by despense for those of you that saw it was about sports medicine and uh, that's attracted lots of comments we'll wait and see whether this one does it certainly did in the office today um at our planning meeting this morning there's lots mm. of discussion about it and uh, whether to have a bmj.com poll on it and um you know there was a straw poll in the office today of how many amongst us had doctors as parents i believe you're in that category harriet aren't you i am my mum's a psychiatrist right so were you given an easy ride as a child um to be honest, no. Very difficult to get a day off school right. full of sicky. But I've, to be honest, I find it quite useful now. So I don't, I probably don't agree with him. Right. It's always good to, it's a, you know, a GP on the line, really. Yes. Oh, very interesting. What else have you got for us today? Well, the last one I picked out was about uh, EU competition law and how this might affect GP commissioning in the future. Um, it's by Rupert Dunbar-Reese and Robert McGough. And I thought it was very interesting because I've heard a lot about the ideology behind choice and competition issues. Yes. But this is really going away and looking at the, the practical implications of, of the processes. Yes. Um, so they think that commissioning will be subject to this competition law. And there's a hell of a lot of detail here. But the, their main conclusions... Are, are that GPs will really have to have very strong procurement skills. This is going to be essential for mm. them. 
Um, and also that, that there might be a conflict of interest between primary care and, and secondary care um, with regard to uh, commissioning. So they say it's involvement of secondary care colleagues in the commissioning process is vital to ensure best outcomes, but commissioners will have to be careful not to prejudice the principles of transparency and fairness by favouring a provider whose staff have given advice. So it seems like there might be difficulties there and also lots of new skills that GPs are going to have to get to grips with. You mentioned fund holding. Obviously that sort of died in 1997, didn't it, when Labour came to power? So I imagine um, there will still be GPs in the workforce that join the fund holding scheme that remember um, what it was like to have a more stronger commissioning role. But um, yes, it's an interesting article. Yeah, uh, they say even since then things have have changed a hell of a lot. Absolutely, I'm sure. Yes, well you'll see that story along with anything else to do with uh, GP commissioning and the health bill that's uh, gone through the Parliament in in England now and uh, the fallout from that um, on bmj.com. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you. Now our podcast producer, Duncan Jarvis, on the latest trial on prostate screening. I'm joined on the phone by Gabriel Sandblom, who's an associate professor at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. He and his colleagues have published on bmj.com a randomised prostate cancer screening trial. It started in 1987 with digital rectal screening and moved on to the PSA test when that became available, and they followed the patients for the next 20 years. So, for a start, Gabriel, what did your study find? So, the study was started 20 years ago, and we found that in this screening group uh, that included 1,400 men, we found 85 cases of prostate cancer, and half of these men were treated with either radiotherapy or radical prostatectomy, that is radical surgery. Mm -hmm. But despite the radical treatment, we did not find an improvement in the the, uh, outcomes in in, in the prostate cancer survival in this group compared to the 8,000 men that were included in the control group. So in conclusion, we could say that even if we detect tumors at an early stage through screening, that is not sufficient to prolong survival in uh, prostate cancer. So do your results suggest that we're, or at least we were, over-treating prostate cancer, considering you know, all the negative side effects that can come from treatment? We cannot, we cannot confirm that definitely, but, but there are indications that, that men that are diagnosed through screening, they may be over-treated. Have we got better at working out if if the prostate cancer is aggressive or if it's a a more benign form, an indolent cancer? Well, it's it's of course, uh, it's a problem with screening that you have a tendency of of detecting the more benign tumours. The more aggressively growing tumours, they may grow too rapidly to be detected through screening. Mm -hmm. That is the interval from uh, from the point where they become detectable until the point where they become too aggressive to, to be able to be treated with radical intent is mm-hmm. too short. And that means that these most aggressive tumors we do not detect with screenings, whereas as the more benign tumors that do not actually benefit from, from radical treatment are over-detected. Is there any way to to get better at that, do you think? There are other studies. There are several studies from from the Netherlands, 
where you may, for example, follow the, the rate of increase in PSA. If you know that you have a rapid increase in, in PSA, you know that this tumor may be more aggressive. Whereas if the PSA grows slowly, then you may prefer a watchful waiting attitude. Such conclusions we cannot draw from, from the present study, but there are there other studies that indicate this. So Gabriel, what's the bottom line for your research? What does this mean for clinicians and for policymakers? The way that prostate cancer screening was performed, at least as it was performed 20 years ago, is not an effective way of reducing prostate cancer mortality. It may be that the way the screening could be performed today and the way that surgery and radiotherapy is performed today, that it is more effective. We do not have sufficient data on, on treatment as it is performed presently. But on the other hand, this is the first study where we have uh, 20 years of follow-up. And uh, in order to assess the outcome of a screening program, you need to have a long follow-up because prostate cancer is a slowly progressing disease and you cannot say anything about prostate cancer mortality until you have followed the man for at least 10 or 20 years. That was Gabriel Sandblom talking to Duncan Jarvis. Gabriel's paper and the responses to it are available on bmj.com's open access research section. Next, Mabel Chu explores therapeutics for hypertension. I have with me in the studio Professor James Ritter, who's Emeritus Professor of Clinical Pharmacology at King's College London. Now, you've written an article for the BMJ's therapeutics series on angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, ACE inhibitors for short, and angiotensin receptor blockers, ARBs for short, and their use in hypertension. Now, we know these drugs work on the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway, and we know that they're now being used in a variety of conditions, including hypertension, heart failure, and diabetic nephropathy. Today, we're going to be concentrating on their use in hypertension. Professor Richer, we already have lots of antihypertensive drugs. We have that um, well-known mnemonic of ABCD, with A being for ACE inhibitors and ARBs, B standing for beta blockers, C for calcium channel blockers, and D for diuretics. With that vast number of drugs at our disposal, when would I as a GP consider ACE inhibitors or ARBs over the others? Well, thank you very much for the nice introduction. The ABCD rule, which you mentioned, suggests that younger patients particularly people who are not African-Caribbean in origin, benefit from treatment which initiates with an A drug. B drugs would be an alternative, but are by and large now reserved for patients who have some additional indication for a beta blocker. Of the two groups, um, the ACE inhibitors have been around longer. There's better evidence base in consequence for using them. Uh, by and large, much less expensive than the ARBs, although uh, that's beginning to change a bit. Okay, so you've mentioned for the younger white population, one might consider an ACE inhibitor or ARB, 
someone over 55, perhaps I wouldn't say they were not young, but someone over 55, uh, possibly a C or D drug. What about somebody who might be young and African, of African or Asian origin? I think by and large, people of African origin statistically do tend to be low renin. The reason for that is really not known. There are various different theories. It may relate to their past generations, or it may relate to current diet, high salt intake, uh, for example. In that population, starting treatment with a, a C or a D drug would be a reasonable way to go. You mentioned um, East Asian people, and I, I, I don't think there's any evidence that they behave like African-Caribbean people in that regard, and I would group them together with white patients. You've mentioned that ACE inhibitors have a better evidence base. They've been around for longer. We know more about their side effects. And their cost is lower than that for ARBs, although that too is changing. Would one then start a patient um, whom you considered appropriate for uh, an A drug on an ACE inhibitor in preference to an ARB then? And if so, when would you use an ARB? Right. The main difference in clinical practice between the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs relates to the side effect of cough. It's not dangerous, but it's a troublesome thing with the ACE inhibitors. If the cough is caused by the ACE inhibitor, then switching to an ARB is an effective way of uh, getting rid of it. Now let's move on to uh, concerns uh, with prescribing these drugs. You've mentioned that they're contraindicated in pregnancy and you wouldn't want to start them on a young woman who was thinking of becoming pregnant at some point. Um, these are long-term drugs, obviously. Um, you've also mentioned this troublesome side effect of cough that we need to warn patients about before prescribing. Are there any issues that we should be thinking about or, or discussing with patients before prescribing these drugs? When one very first starts taking either a ACE inhibitor or a, an ARB, um, there's the possibility of first-dose hypotension. You'd want to be sure that they were not volume-depleted when they uh, start to take the drug, um, and uh, so you question them about whether they'd had any recent intercurrent illness, diarrhea or vomiting or anything like that. When you initiate treatment, if they've been on a diuretic beforehand, you'd want to withhold that for a couple of days before they start the uh, ACE inhibitor. And then it's usual to start treatment uh, uh, before retiring at night, to take the first dose, last thing at night. And you need to warn them that if they need to get up to go to the bathroom, sit on the side of the bed for a few moments, and, and if they do feel uh, lightheaded or swimmy, to rest back down and, and that the uh, postural hypotension will pass off. Um, so that, that, that would be the main, uh, the main thing. One would obviously review the other medication that they were taking. There are other adverse effects, particularly relating to um, renal function and one would uh, want to make sure that they weren't taking a, a non-steroidal drug in particular or a potassium retaining diuretic. After the first dose at night, one can advise patients to take the subsequent doses at the same time of day um, and 
time that's convenient to them and uh, uh, an easy one to remember. Uh, many patients like to take tablets first thing in the morning, and that's absolutely fine. Most of the uh, ACE inhibitors and ARBs that we use can be given once a day, and it's also uh, perfectly acceptable to uh, take it uh, last thing at night, um, and even a little bit of uh, evidence that doing that um, may produce even better 24-hour control in uh, at least one small more recent study. Is there any other important adverse event that we might need to warn patients about? Yes. One uncommon but severe adverse effect is angioedema. Angioedema, uh, sometimes associated with urticaria, um, can be uh, life-threatening if it involves the airway in particular and is uh, pretty unpleasant even if it doesn't. If a patient develops angioedema, one should stop an ACE inhibitor and one should not re-challenge them with any ACE inhibitor subsequently. Would an ARB be a suitable second option if angioedema develops? It is. Uh, having said that, um, some people who uh, develop um, angioedema with ACE inhibitors are also sensitive to ARBs. Um, but it's uh, much less common. So probably depends a little bit on how severe the reaction was mm. and um, what the alternatives are uh, in terms of controlling their blood pressure. If somebody had a very severe, life-threatening episode of angioedema with an ACE inhibitor, one would perhaps prefer to go with a C or a D drug. Okay, well, that's very useful information. Basically, we need to warn patients about first-dose hypertension and the cough. We need to be very careful prescribing these drugs in patients with hyperkalemia or taking drugs that may raise potassium levels. We need to be wary of patients who are taking NSAIDs, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or who are in renal failure. And they're most likely contraindicated if patients have a history of angioedema uh, or at least ACE inhibitors are definitely contraindicated in young women considering pregnancy or uh, who've just become pregnant. Would that be a fair summary? Yes, uh, and in terms of pregnancy, ARBs uh, as well as ACE inhibitors are, are um, contraindicated. Thank you. Now, how do we monitor patients who are taking these drugs? Before starting, it's a good idea to get a baseline creatinine and electrolytes and it's a good idea to have the patient return a week or two weeks after starting treatment with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB because there's a small subset of people who have undiagnosed bilateral renal artery stenosis or they have renal artery stenosis in an artery going to a single functional kidney. And those individuals will develop acute renal failure when they start either an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. That's pretty uncommon, uh, but obviously bad. And if you catch it early and stop the ACE inhibitor, then hemodynamic changes are all reversible. If patients have some baseline impairment of renal function, that, of course, does not contraindicate using ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Uh, because the great majority of patients with renal impairment 
actually benefit from treatment with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB in terms of limiting the decline in renal function. It's a bit of a playoff. Okay, thank you very much. So to summarise that, um, check serum creatinine and electrolytes before starting these drugs. After a week or two, recheck. And, of course, check the blood pressure both to make sure the drug's working and also to exclude postural hypotension. And um, after the first check, how often would you recommend checking these electrolyte and creatinine levels in somebody who didn't have significant renal impairment? Perhaps at some time between three and six months. And if all's well then, then it seems to me that it's good practice to see people perhaps annually gives an opportunity to check the patient and make sure that all is well and to check creatinine and electrolytes at that visit. It's not a very expensive test to do and would be a very reasonable thing to do. If you said, was it absolutely necessary, then perhaps every couple of years for a creatinine and electrolytes, but once a year for a visit would be my not very evidence-based, but my clinical, clinical advice. Well, thank you for that useful update on how we might prescribe ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. Professor Ritter, thank you very much. Thank you. That's everything for this week. Thanks for listening. Join us next time. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.